Hello, you're listening to the NeuroDescent podcast. My name is Nick Sugtarelu, and I'm a neurodivergent scholar, writer, and social theorist. I started this podcast because I'm interested in talking about topics we often think of as mental health, but I'm dissatisfied with the kinds of conversations we have about mental health. I'm especially dissatisfied with the way that psychiatric terms are used in these conversations. Um, for example, I'm autistic. While I think that having this psychiatric label, autistic, helps me understand myself better, I'm less convinced that it tells other people what I want them to know about me. Other people interpret the word in ways that have come from psychology, like the idea that autistic people don't have social skills. So I've begun researching and writing about topics like psychiatric disorders, neurodivergence, madness, mental illness, etc. I've been trying to think and talk about these issues in ways that could empower me or other people. You can find out more about my work and this podcast at my website, nsuptorelu.com, or you can Google NeuroDescent to find me. Joining me in this podcast is my partner in life and thought, Molly Friesenborg. Hi. Um, so in addition to being married to you and therefore hearing a lot of you talking about this. Um, I am a nonprofit professional. I work in youth development and have um, worked really closely with mental health professionals for a lot of my career um, and have also seen a lot of that love-hate relationship with mental health work um, in the youth I've worked with and for myself. Um, so excited to dive into this. All right. So this first season um, we're going to explore one topic, which is demons and demonic possession, which you might think is a kind of strange place to Not start. Not where I would have started. <laughs> so the reason for this topic, um, the reason that I chose this topic is that I'm interested in exploring a world before the rise of psychiatry. I'm interested in how we talked about mental health before we talked about mental health, before we talked about psychiatry. That does sound scary and demonic. <laughs> So at, in a time before psychiatry, people understood the body, the mind, and their possible inflections differently than we do today. And we might think that they understood them in less developed ways or in inferior ways, but I'm not so sure. So you want to challenge that like history is linear. Yeah, right. Exactly. We, okay. we should, we should be skeptical of this, his, the, the idea that We've only Men improved. That mental health patients are receiving better care today, for example, than, than they might have from an exorcist. That is hard to wrap my brain around. <laughs> but I want to hear more. Yeah, right. So this idea came to me um, in part through thinking about ideas from the philosopher Michel Foucault. Um, so he has a book called Madness and Civilization. And in that book, I'm going to read part of that book to you, or I'm going to read part of that, the early part of that book to you here. In the serene world of mental illness, modern man no longer communicates with the madman. As for a common language between mad people and sane people, there is no such thing, or rather there is no such thing any longer. The constitution of madness as a mental illness at the end of the 18th century affords the evidence of a broken dialogue. The concept of mental illness thrusts into oblivion all those stammered, imperfect words without fixed syntax into which the, in which the exchange between madness and reason was made. The language of psychiatry, which is a monologue of reason about madness, has been established only on the basis of madness's silence so she's arguing we created such a strong dichotomy that folks who experienced in this language madness were never a part of the conversation at all they were just thrust out of it and it's only folks who supposedly aren't mad monologuing on it is that is that what i'm within supposed to get psychiatry foucault is trying to tell us that when we came up with the notion of mental illness and psychiatry, suddenly we no longer listened to the ideas that came out of the mouths of mad people. We simply treated them as nonsense. And, and when, 
it's worth talking about this word madness a little bit because mm -hmm. madness is a term that we don't really use anymore but it was a general term for some kind of mental health problem maybe maybe delusions in particular um before the rise of psychiatry and so the reason that that uh <clears throat> the reason that Foucault uses it and the reason that I'm also going to use it is that it has the it's it's a term that we can use that doesn't rely on psychiatric language ah uh, okay so like to try and find a different term requires a diagnosis and that is difficult to right yeah. so instead we say we could say madness right and when I use the term madness, I'm actually referring less to something going on in your brain and more to the way you are perceived by other people. Ah, got it. So we're really thinking about the social side of all of this. Exactly. So I will say, though, the thing that sticks out to me here mm -hmm. is still that intense dichotomy that you are mad or not mad, as opposed to this being something everyone deals with in various degrees at various points of their life. Well, and one of the things that Foucault says is that that is indeed what happens as a result of psychiatry. Madness, on the other hand, prior to the development of psychiatry, was thought of as a constant threat to everyone. Interesting. Okay, and that folks could be, could they, they could have madness and they could be cured from madness. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, they could be thought to be cured from madness, right? They could... They could struggle. They There are writings where people struggle against their own internal madnesses or there is. Hmm. Um, so it's actually was in the time period used a lot more flexibly than I thinking of it in retrospect. I think so. Um, I think the way that you're thinking of it, it definitely is used that way also in the history. But it's not necessarily used in a way that that only some people are mad and other people are not. Got that it. is, in fact, that is the point that Foucault really wants to make, that there's a complete separation between madness and reason as a result of psychiatry that didn't exist before. Interesting. Okay. And, that, and that separation also leads to a lack of communication. If we take Foucault's lead and we go back in time, we should be able to uncover evidence of a form of communication between mad people and sane people. So some kind of communication that used to happen that no longer does, in large part because of psychiatry. So that's why I thought about demonic possession, because demonic possession is a way of talking about mental health or, or madness um, that has a lot of language or discourse built up around it, people and, and different practices for thinking about it and engaging with it, uh, that isn't about psychiatry. It really but comes... But someone totally wrote the Demonic Possession Handbook, so we have a lot of evidence to look at. Absolutely, yeah. There's definitely Demonic Possession Handbook. I can't handbooks. even, like, say it non-sarcastically. Like, my modern brain is so trained into that, I need to, like, not make that a joke. Got it. That is really important, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you're, you're right. This idea, I'm, we're going to call this, for now, we're going to call it Demonic Realism, which is this idea that demons are real entities in the world. And it definitely strikes me and you uh, and other modern listeners as fake, total old-fashioned crap that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure even that's a very mainstream point of view, and there's lots of people today who still very much believe in this. That's absolutely true. There are definitely plenty of demonic realists in the world. I've known them. Um, it's, not a, it's not a marginal or unknown opinion by any means. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I want to talk about this interesting article that I read called How Not to Object to Demonic Realism. Oh, you knew exactly what I needed next. <laughs> exactly. Um, so philosopher Shandon L. Guthrie in this article critiques the idea that psychiatric disorders explain away demonic possession. So she writes, there are those anti-realists who think that mental disorders are what cause the relevant disorderly behaviors in people that occasionally manifest and that this is well-established science. However, the diagnostic canons of psychology and psychiatry do not identify causes of the conditions at all because such causes cannot be found. And then she goes on to note that if we say, okay, these, these diseases that psychiatry says people have are real, still 
that doesn't contradict demonic realism. Demons could have caused the disease. Yeah. I think what strikes me most about looking at, at madness and mental health from this angle is that it's I want to believe the causes are real so that we can fix them mm. easily. And mm. that is a struggle because I think that, that belief in that modern day idea of it's just my brain chemistry is comforting. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's that's hard to let go of in that sense because because I like it. Because mm. <laughs> it sounds easier. It's really complicated and we need to get out of thinking just one mindset i think is the the overall premise here though yeah we don't need to necessarily embrace demonic realism i don't embrace demonic realism i am not a demonic realist um but rather we need to be prepared to engage seriously with demonic realism if we're going to have this conversation um we need to be able to see the world from the point of view of a demonic realist we need to accept that they think that it's real as i've already said i'm not a demonic realist I'm agnostic and non-religious. I've yet to be convinced that demon- that demons or other spiritual entities are real. Nonetheless, I'm interested in how people who believe they are real think about things like ma- mental health. Did you have to like plan your like um, what's it called the, your warning label of not a demonic realism podcast? Like, <laughs> like okay, everyone, I am not actually trying to convince you that demons are real. I think That's you just might have point. lost some listeners who were here for that. Uh-oh. So what we're going to do in this season is work our way through history, um, through different, you know, segments of history, totally not a complete history by any means, but um, work our way through some selected And we should probably points. go ahead and acknowledge, like... We're West. still living in a world where white people wrote history. Absolutely. A lot of the... For our perspective of life. Yeah. So I'm going to be working from sources that definitely center Western perspectives, although I've tried to not simply focus on that. Mm-hmm. But definitely want to acknowledge it up front. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in this episode, we're going to start by talking about a man who is often called the father of modern medicine, Hippocrates. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Um... And we're also going to talk about the god he was associated with, Ooh, Asclepius. I know less about that. Okay. Yeah? So All right, Asclepius. so let's start with Hippocrates. What do you know about Hippocrates? The Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath. He was Greek, and he was a doctor. That's pretty Boom. much the sum of it. Boom. Excellent, excellent. So the thing is that we don't really know that much about Hippocrates, so honestly, that's maybe some of the only things that we could really possibly know about him is are the things that you said. Um So classicist Helen King uh, has written a book called Hippocrates Now. And uh, it's, anyway, her first- That title deserved a giggle moment. It it really does, yeah. Her first chapter is titled, What We Know About Hippocrates. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Okay, let's get ready. Hippocrates lived in classical Greece and was associated with the island of Kos. He gained a reputation as a writer and a medical doctor. I nailed it. I knew everything but the island he lived on. That's Boom. Right. Those are the two sen- those two sentences are the whole chapter. And King has done this kind of intentionally to show us that we don't really know much about Hippocrates. There's not much that we can confirm about Hippocrates the man. But what we do know or what we think we know comes from a set of writings that are sometimes attributed to the man Hippocrates. Oh, I see. So a lot of the writing we don't even necessarily know. We stuck his name on it, but that was in later years. Yeah, somebody stuck his name on it, yeah. right? Um, and, and there's been a long tradition of trying to understand these writings. Um, you know, throughout history, people have looked back at them and commented on them. And so in the process the name of Hippocrates has been associated with a lot of different things. Now, these things could have been written by students or followers um, of Hippocrates. So they're often called, this is often called the Hippocratic Corpus, this bunch of texts that maybe was written by Hippocrates or, or was maybe written by his students, his followers. So it's like, it's like the Hippocrapasi. Boom. It's the (laughs) Hippocraposse. It's this whole group of folks and his followers. Got it. The Hippocraposse. One of the most relevant of these texts for our discussion is called On the Sacred Disease. Okay. 
I've and heard that title before. Have you? All right. So the On the Sacred Disease was written about 400 BC, which was around the time of Hippocrates. Yeah, my brain can totally conceptualize that. Uh-huh. Yeah, so 400 BC, right. That's that's 2,400 years ago. Long time, right? Rejected, says my brain. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> so the author is unknown. Uh, but it is a text... Part of the Hippocrapossi. But it's, you know, perhaps the Hippocrapossi. And it's strongly associated with the Hippocratic medical viewpoint that the origins and treatments of disease should be found in the workings of the body. As opposed to... The workings of the gods. Okay. So, um, the te- the essay on the sacred disease, uh, in it, the author calls out other healers from the from the time period who thought about epilepsy or other mental afflictions as caused by gods. Yeah, Zeus hit you with a lightning bolt. Now you have seizures. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. So epilepsy Wait, is Zeus Greek or Roman? Anyways, Zeus on. is Greek. Okay, I got it right. Yay. <laughs> okay, so maybe I don't actually know any Roman gods. Okay, anyways. Okay, so I'm going to read to you part of. On the Sacred Disease, which most people think is largely talking about what we today call epilepsy. Um, Epilepsy had been identified by other people even before Hippocrates and and had been thought of as having a a bodily origin. Yet, still, people persisted in believing, of course. Just in case folks don't know, generally we're talking about like a seizure disorder. Exactly, yeah. And we'll see what that... He'll, Hippocrates will talk about the symptoms in the text. Okay. So I'll, I'll read that to you. So, they who first referred this malady to the gods appear to me to have been just such persons as the conjurers, purificators, mountebanks, and charlatans now are, who give themselves out for being excessively religious and as knowing more than other people. Such persons, then using the divinity as a pretext and screen of their own inability to afford any assistance, have given out that the disease is sacred. Damn, Hippocrapasi throws some shade. Yeah, that's some real shade. He's saying, you know, other people who say that this is divinely caused are just saying that because they can't do anything about it. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay, so did the Hippocrapasi have anything to do about it, though? It? What do you mean? The sacred disease. Could they treat it? That's less clear. Right? Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> That's. I'm not sure. Throwing shade without without being able to show up. Okay. I, I'm not sure that they. You know, they didn't have necessarily like the anti seizure medicines, for example, <laughs> that we might have. But still, um, at least they weren't saying you were damned by the gods. Well, we'll get to some ways in which it might be helpful to not approach this as a divine disease, right? At least they're going to argue that That's there's... That's got to come with a lot of social weight back in those days. Exactly. You know, like Zeus hates you. Exactly. Um, all right. So before we get to Zeus hating you, I want to talk about um, these natural causes that, that apparently cause epilepsy. Okay. And, and this other... is, again, from the sacred... Um, the this dis- is, again, from On the Sacred Disease. Got it. Okay, so I'm reading now. And the disease called the sacred arises from causes as the others, namely those things which enter and quit the body, such as cold, the sun, and the winds, which are ever-changing and are never at rest. And these things are divine, so that there is no necessity for making a distinction and holding this disease to be more divine than the others. But all are divine and all human. Okay, I got it. So there was no lightning bolt. There's just all the regular things in the world that make people sick. Exactly. And that all was created by God, so everything's divine. But, like, stop it with your, like, yeah. got it. I mean, we can see it as divine. But this disease ain't special. Right, exactly. I, I think that the Hippocrapasi really does want to treat everything I love as... that you jumped on that name. Yeah, right. <laughs> that they want to treat... Uh, it is divine in the sense that they believe in like the body's ability to regenerate and, and all of this. And they see that in a, in, in a way that's connected to the God Asclepius potentially. Um, but they don't, they reject the idea that gods are punishing people, that, that that's why they have these 
diseases. So um, instead of instead of saying that there's a god causing epilepsy, they suggest that the brain is the site of the affliction, which makes this essay rather modern seeming in that it points clearly epilepsy to the, happens in the brain, that's right? Or seizures happen in the brain. That's pretty big. Yeah. So here's how it describes a severe case of epilepsy. The brain becomes more humid than natural <laughs> and is inundated with phlegm so that the defluxions become more frequent and the phlegm can no longer be reduced nor the brain be dried up, but it becomes wet and humid. This you may ascertain in particular from beasts of the flock, which are seized with this disease, and more especially goats, for they are most frequently attacked with it. If you will cut open the head, you will find the brain humid, full of sweat, and having a brain... and having a bad smell. And in this way, truly you may see that it is not a god that injures the body, but disease. And so it is with man. There's like a lot there. Um, <laughs> one, I have to say, this just makes me think of the Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode when you have like a rock hard brain and they argue your brain should be moist. And like, <laughs> I, I kind of feel like maybe they didn't cut open any healthy brains and see that they are also uh, very moist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, to your point, like the idea that it even came from the brain does seem like so obvious to us now, but that actually does feel like that was, you know... Yeah. Really different at that time period. Mm -hmm. But but also, where did he find these dry brains? That's, I'm confused. But... I don't think he said anything about dry brains. He said, go cut open a, an epileptic goat's head and check out the brain. Yeah, but he said, like, it can't, it can't dry itself out like it's supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'm going to stop criticizing the hypocrisy now. Moving forward. <laughs> okay, so... One of the, the most interesting parts is of this essay is the fact that it talks so much about the brain's involvement in our mental or emotional states. So, Can you give any, like, do you happen to know off the top of your head, because obviously you know all about Greek physicians, um, but, like, what was the common, uh, like, did, was there... I guess there wasn't any hypothesis about where these things lived in the body before because they didn't live in the body. We thought they were caused by the gods. So I guess I'm trying to compare it to something that just wasn't what the mindset was at all. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it's not the first time anyone has necessarily said that this was caused in the brain. I don't want to suggest that. Um, but, or that it was caused in the body. Um, but it is connected to this group of physicians who are taking cutting this idea cutting they're cutting open heads and <laughs> um so you know in that sense it it's it seems like an important historical development um that that we have a group of people who are writing this idea down and practicing medicine in a way that and shaming people. And shaming people for <laughs> for being for thinking that maybe it's the gods that cause epilepsy. Stupid, overly religious. Exactly. God That's how I mean, it's it's a very modern text in that way, right? right? <laughs> so on the sacred disease, uh, again, the the idea about the brain it, it has a lot uh, about the brain in it, and I want to say, I want to read a little bit more about what it says about the brain. Men ought to know that from nothing else but the brain come joys, delights, laughter, and sports, and sorrows, griefs, despondencies, and lamentations. And by the same organ we become mad and delirious, and fears and terrors assail us, some by night and some by day, and dreams and untimely wanderings, and cares that are not suitable, and ignorance of present circumstances, disuse, and unskillfulness. All these things we endure from the brain when it is not healthy, but is more hot, more cold, more moist, or more dry than natural, and when it suffers any other preternatural and unusual affection. And we become mad from its humidity, for when it is more moist than natural, it is necessarily put into motion, and the affection being moved, neither the sight nor hearing can be at rest, and the tongue speaks in accordance with the sight and hearing." And so I, even though this essay is specifically talking about epilepsy, you can see that. I mean, it's, it's, it feels very modern in the sense of like, 
how like all I don't know it almost it feels like kind of social to me too like all these different things like I'm babbling now but like I can see someone describing their brain the same way these days in the sense of like that you know this happiness and joy and problems and I mean it almost feels like he's talking about intrusive thoughts could all are all coming from the same place Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um you know minus the part where instead of getting my brain chemicals changed I could go to the brain desert to dry it out Right, right. <laughs> so the the underlying mechanisms of the brain aren't really understood in mm-hmm. in these texts. Um, they're talking a lot about humidity and coldness and and what appears to be maybe a nice trip to the brain freezer will really do it for you. Yeah, like a and and there are these references. It seems to the humors um, mm-hmm. with discussion of phlegm, uh, and so it's it's clear that they don't have the same understanding of uh, the mechanisms of physiology. Um, But nonetheless, they're making this point that we should focus on the brain and not on gods or other, other supernatural entities. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back to that thing you said about the stigma of the disease. Mm, Zeus hates you. (laughs) Zeus hates you. Right. Um, I don't want to be next to the dude Zeus hates. I might get some lightning bolt on me. Exactly. Okay. So another point in this essay that I thought was really interesting is the fact that the author seems to be aware of that stigma. Um, So the author writes, such persons as are habituated to the disease know beforehand when they are about to be seized and flee from men. So in other words, people Mm. who've had epilepsy for a long time know when they're going to have a seizure, and so they go hide from other people. If their own house be at hand, they run home, but if not, to a deserted place, where as few persons as possible will see them falling, and they immediately cover themselves up. This they do from shame of the affection, and not from fear of the divinity, as many suppose. Zeus can follow you anywhere, so it's really just the other humans you're trying to hide from. Mm Mm-hmm. This is really interesting because uh, it suggests that the author of On the Sacred Disease is really listening to epileptic patients and is having mm. a conversation with them about, you know, what it is that they're experiencing, which we might say kind of contradicts the whole point of this season um, and this idea that I was bringing forth by Foucault that, uh, you know, 2,400 years ago, listened. the Hippocrapasi listened. They said we should pay attention to the brain and they were listening um, still, I think before we get too excited about that, we need to still understand the, Hipp- the Hippocrapasi's connection. It doesn't just roll off the to tongue the gods. It doesn't just roll off the tongue, no. But the Hippocrapasi's connection to the gods, what is it? Um, so I want to talk about Asclepius, the god of healing. And what I want to start with is this little symbol right here. Obviously people who are listening can't hear it, but, or they can't see it, but, um, do you see this snake wrapped around a staff here? Okay. Do you know what that is? Have you seen that before? Snake on a staff? No. You've never like you've never seen that on like I mean, medical like, stuff. Particularly put over a little blue asterisky symbol, it feels like it feels familiar in terms of like what modern logos for healthcare look like. But I don't. Yeah. I've never noticed it that specifically, at least. Okay. Well, this staff with the snake wrapped around it is the rod of Asclepius. Okay. Which is really interesting because, as you said, it continues to be used by modern medical institutions to mark themselves as healers. Interesting. And so, anyway, Asclepius is a god of healing. And there were many healing gods in classical Greek and Roman times, but Asclepius was by far the most popular. And his... uh, popularity or his his influence remains as you can see from this symbol that continues to pop up that we don't really know what it is but but that's what it is um it is it is borrowed from the asclepius the cult of asclepius um so anyway asclepius is mentioned uh by homer in the iliad and odyssey and so he's existed in the collective mindset prior to hippocrates but um he comes about he becomes even more important later. Um, he was widely seen as an effective healer for many centuries. 
um, from before Hippocrates, and then even for centuries after Jesus Christ was born and died. I like that. We keep the healing God and got rid of the rest, but he, he kept going longer because we really liked him. <laughs> so there are at least two group of people that are associated with Asclepius. Let me um, guess. One of them is the Hippocrapasi. One of them is the Hippocrapasi. So the physicians that are part of the Hippocratic tradition, um, they see themselves as followers of Asclepius. And you mentioned the Hippocratic Oath. The, Hippo the early versions of the Hippocratic Oath um, are given to Apollo and Asclepius and other gods. Eh, that makes sense. Um, and then... So you're actually telling me like all modern doctors are, are kind of part of the Hippocrapasi. Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> he wasn't on board with that, listeners. He wasn't. <laughs> um, so... So who are the other people? The other people are the priests who are working at temples called Asclepiads. So there are temples built for uh, people to come to and receive healing where these priests work. And they are also uh, physicians or physicians in training. They give medical care to people, um, but they work in these temples. The Hippocratic physicians may go to the temples, I don't know, but they, they also made house calls um, and and maybe worked uh, for the public dime, and things like that. So I want to talk about these Asclepiads. These are the sanctuaries, the Asclepiad sanctuaries. So um, they were prominent in the time of Hippocrates, and then they continued to be important long after that. I want to read you a, a description of one of them uh, by a historian named Alex Villas-Boas. Um, and he describes, he describes them in this way. The Asclepiad sanctuaries were a huge complex of buildings that contained, in addition to the Temple of Prayers, spas for medicinal baths, an amphitheater, a library, a guest house, and a gym for physical exercise. The largest one was Epidorus, which is an amphitheater with a capacity for 14,000 spectators and a monumental sports complex able to host what became known as the Asclepian Games of Epidorus every four years. The temple administration had a sophisticated economy with enough resources to create and maintain itself, gener generated mainly by donations for those who had been cured. So I immediately, of course, was trying to like fit this into my modern understanding and comparison of places. Mm -hmm. And so at first when you're like, oh, you go here to get healed, I'm thinking this is like the modern day institutions where you like might check in for a few days. And I'm like, oh no, this sounds so much nicer. It's like a spa, but like also with sports, like what, like that feels like they're thinking about healing in a much more holistic manner, right? Because it's not just like, you didn't get come in and get prayed over or get some like tea, mm -hmm. but like it, it, it also just sounds like a place for, for fun and socialization and relaxation and, and your interests. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... I want to hang out there. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. They sound Except for amazing. not the sports part. Let's do that. So oh, let's, wait, that's just me. let's talk a little bit about what happened inside of the temp, uh, inside of the sanctuaries um, in terms of the healing. So a scholar of religion named Olympia Panagiotito uh, argues that the priests in the sanctuaries utilized what we would call placebo effects to great ends. Um, so she describes what, what you might experience if you went to one of these. So I'll read that, this to you. The anatomical votive offerings displayed in the sanctuaries indicated that the god had the power to cure the inflicted bodily parts, and he has done that many times in the past. Spending some time in the sanctuaries, patients would have socialized themselves with other patients sharing common fears and hopes in the Asclepius healing powers. In addition, they would have received instructions to purify themselves, taking baths, performing libations, and offering sacrifices to the god. Sounds like group therapy plus spa time. Yeah, there is. There does seem to be a group uh, dynamic to it for sure. So I'll, I'll continue reading from Olympia Panagiotito. 
Um, when the night fell, they were to be ready to get into the Abaton, where they would stay overnight. There they entered alone, without their companion, and stayed in the darkness alone, or stayed in the darkness along with other patients. They were to lie on pallets and remain silent and still, waiting for Asclepius to appear in their sleep. They expected that the divine healer would perform an immediate treatment or that he would give them prescriptions which they should follow when they woke up in order to gain recovery. So, um, I was trying to come up with something interesting to say about the sleep healing. I got, I got nothing. Well, well I'll keep, uh, let, me, let me keep telling you about this sleep healing. So another article, this one by Melanie White, uh, which is titled Connections Between Sleep and Medicine in Ancient Greece. Okay. Um, this article discusses the way that the Asclepiad priests used sleep as a healing tool. Uh, White suggests that before the patients went to sleep, the priests gave them a drug of some kind. And it seems maybe this was an opiate uh, because there are decorative poppies in the sleeping area. Um, so Melanie White then describes that the supplicant or the patient would dream in his induced sleep that the god has come to him and described his treatment. The priest would then interpret the findings of the dream to perform a surgery if necessary, keeping the patient in a state between sleep and waking while he worked. So minus the surgery part, which that creeps me out a little bit, but it's honestly the first thing I thought of is I, a friend who did a... Um, What's it called? Ayahuasca retreat. Well, that would work, but I was also thinking the uh, microdosing. Um, yeah. Like with like did a microdosing like um, what's it called the the mu mu mushrooms like mu what's the uh -oh. actual plasibacillin or something yeah whatever yeah. that is but like guided with their therapist yeah and like then like she was like helping interpret and process like the journey they went on in that state. And I'm like, Oh shit, that sounds just like this. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I, I think that that is a very similar technique to what the Asclepiad priests were doing. And, and it's interesting too, that they're also performing surgery, which kind of shows that they, they're aware of uh, the, the benefits of a of medical techniques for healing too um but they're also and the combination of these and factors. the combination yeah. of these things right so they're they're kind of trying to do it all at once um literally yeah okay so interestingly uh we have records of firsthand experience uh from a man named alias aristotetus um he was a patient of asclepius's and he recorded his first ten, uh, his experience with treatment uh, from the Asclepiad Sanctuary, as well as with physicians from outside the sanctuary. So he was apparently chronically ill. Um, and I want to, he, he gets a number of treatments, but I want to focus specifically on the treatments that he gets for depression or melancholy. Um, so in one case, classicist Joan Stavala explains that Asclepius told Aristotetus in a dream consultation to compose songs and lyric verse and to fund a boy's choir. Huh. So he did that and he reported that he felt comforted by the boy's singing and that often the pain stopped. It's like... Asclepius told him what his philanthropic pursuits should be that make him happy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's not the only mental health advice he got from Asclepius. Um, in Joan Stavala's article, she writes, when the first onset of his sickness forced him to abandon the study of rhetoric, Aristotetus fell into depression. After his arrival at the shrine at Pergamum, Asclepius appeared in a dream, exhorting him not to abandon rhetoric. Aristotetus despaired of his ability to follow the god's prescription, but encouraged by two other supplicants at the shrine who promised their help and support, he resumed the practice of rhetoric. It seems that the treatment was successful. Uh -huh. He was depressed and couldn't do what he liked anymore, and he got support well, gods and from others to continue doing it and get back to what he enjoyed. Wow. Exactly. It's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, like it's, 
and it's all clo cloaked in a sort of healing ritual that he would have perhaps believed in in a sort of realist sense he might have yeah. believed which speaks to that they relied on the placebo effect part of things too from what right. you were saying which like I swear there's been some times where I'm like, oh my God, please give me a placebo. Like, I don't care as long as I feel better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, being modern isn't really all it's cracked up to be. No. Um, the other thing that really stands out in both of those stories to me gets back to what we were saying at the beginning of like, of this idea that it's not, not that dichotomy that I associate modernly with madness and the idea that madness gets you set off mm -hmm. and away from the public but these are folks who got back to being active society members and like doing their work and so very much like not that dichotomy but that you can have that hard time be healed and get back to it like potentially and as, i mean i don't know obviously i'm extrapolating and making stuff up about twenty five thousand years ago but um <laughs> twenty five hundred hundred yeah sorry i meant that hundred um but like that in some ways to me almost sounded like indicating like a kind of a lack of stigma of going to these places in the sense of like their ability to get back to work and start a crier and yeah. keep writing about rhetoric. I think it, I think it opens up the possibility to have conversations about mental health, like, like Aristotelus is having in the, you know, after he's gone through this sleep and sleep and uh, this induced sleep He's had his opiates, he's dreamt about Asclepius, and now they're all sitting around talking about what he should do to heal, and they're they're talking about his struggles with depression. Um, yeah. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, another part of my brain is like, I hope those priests control those opiates. Did they have an opioid crisis in Greece? <laughs> but we'll save that for someone else's podcast. Uh, to my knowledge, they did not, but... <laughs> or they did not have a problem with that, but maybe. Okay. <clears throat> So one of the big questions that I have is, you know, what is the connection between the Asclepiad sanctuaries and the Hippocratic physicians? Are they, you know, completely separate things? And it seems as though they, they can't possibly be completely separate. Um, there seems to be an exchange of knowledge and other possible cooperation between these two entities. And I think it's quite possible that Hippocratic physicians would have recommended treatments at the Asclepiad sanctuaries um, for some cases where their medical craft was of little use. And I would suspect that a great deal of those cases were actually mental health cases um, mm. where they were not able to, for example, cut off your bunion or whatever and, and thus heal you. Um, their observations of the body would have had rather limited effect on uh, treatments of depression. So I almost hear you suggesting that this was in some ways replicating the current like what we expect divide around mental health professionals and like non-mental health physicians who are treating your more specific bodily ailments. Like it almost had that kind of like, not mm. negative divide, but like duology of like multiple ways of, of treating. Like I babbled a little there, but like, <laughs> I think, I think what, what makes sense to think about here is that the Asclepiad sanctuary would have just, offered a whole different kind of treatment than a Hippocratic physician who shows up at your house and, you know, gives you a prescription and then leaves would have you, you would have been going to this sanctuary and staying there potentially and having all kinds of healing uh, rituals and maybe involving yourself in sport and talking to other people. So there's all kinds of possible benefits that can come out of that. So it, it makes sense that the Hippocratic physicians would potentially say, you know, I'm a, I'm making house calls around this area. I don't have time to sit with you and, and think about your problems in life, but that's exactly what goes on in these sanctuaries. So go there. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You know, to move back to this connection between them, it's also clear that the priests are, trained to some extent in medicine and that they are also being influenced yeah, right they're they're being influenced by the hippocratic physicians so there's a sort of bi-directional connection going on so let's return to michel foucault's claim that in the serene world of mental illness modern man no longer communicates with the madman 
So like I said, Foucault argues that we once had a common language uh, between mad people and sane people, or between the mentally unhealthy and the mentally healthy, or however we want to draw this line. This language existed, or this communication existed, even if it was imperfect, um, there was still an attempt to try to understand. So the, wi the willingness to listen to the mad person could be something that's very key. Um, and it might have been that the sense of wonder that people appro approached mental illness with was a key factor in that. So the rise of mental illness, the rise of the idea that this is a disease in the brain, um, may have eroded that sense of wonder and may have led us to be less willing to listen carefully to what mad people are saying and experiencing. And so when you say a sense of wonder, that's almost where the the God part comes into it, right? Like if we think about this as being connected to a skeptic, Asclepius. 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 Thank you. I was like Asclepius. That's not right. Um, Asclepius and and divine healing areas and all of that like has a very different social connotation than you are broken. Right. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. No, I think so. Um. So I think we've already kind of covered some of the points that I want to make about what Foucault would see in in this story. Um. To my knowledge, Foucault doesn't ever talk about ancient Greece. He's he's more interested in the Foucault, Renaissance. Foucault and the Hippocrates—he totally should have connected. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's aware of them, or he was aware of them, but I don't know that he ever uh, did any close study of them. Um, so, I think it's interesting. I think this dream therapy that we see in the Asclepiad sanctuaries provides an example of how the mad person's perspective is taken seriously. Uh, inside of what we might call this supernatural ritual. In particular, the the mad person, or the person who's, who we might potentially call mad, has a dream, and then they're the ones that are in charge of telling the priest about the dream, and the priests have to listen, and, and other people are also mm. potentially involved in interpreting and listening to the dream. Wow, but it centers them as, right. as the... Um, the authority what's, on the... What's the... the, the conduit for the godly word and like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh and, and so, the authority on themselves like that's really really yeah powerful it's feeling it is it is powerful feeling in that way um as opposed to us acting upon you you know like, yeah and yet still i mean like we i began this this discussion with the on the sacred disease so we have this other side of things though that also is present even 2,400 years ago, which is this idea that this sense of wonder is potentially damaging, right? This idea that if we think about gods as being involved in, in our, uh, in our health, then we are potentially setting up a situation where, uh, people are going to be blamed for their mental health mm. and, and for, for example, for their epileptic seizures. So it's a, it's a complicated issue, I think. Yeah. I think what stands what what stands out to me is this idea of I I I inextricably kind of link that that sense of wonder or you know with the the supernatural part of it right and the idea that like we we can't ex even try to explain this all right because there is this this the godly intervention and the supernatural and and I in my head I think what popped into it was like man, what if we could have that sense of wonder just for each other's humans, right? And yeah. not have to have the supernatural part to think of you as a conduit that's worth listening to because you're connected to the supernatural, but because yeah. each other are just worthy of that sense of wonder and investment. Some type of, you know, idea of the, of all humanity as divine, yeah. um, which is almost kind of referenced in the Hippocratic <laughs> texts. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, I don't think that we do. I think we've, if we ever had that, we've seemed to have lost it. I think it's, it's, it's a very different way of thinking about what I think I've often thought about of like, in, in my work in, in nonprofit and in human services, like just deeply recognizing the humanity of everyone and, mm -hmm. and being curious and wanting to pull you know not pull that out of people that sounds 
like we're going back to surgery, but wanting to like <laughs> exorcism. create a space where people can share those things about themselves and like yeah. invest in people deeply. I would, that's why I really enjoy about my work. And like mm-hmm. that almost feels like it is that same kind of sense of like, having each anyways i'm babbling now that's too, that's but. what i get from these yeah descriptions and stories for sure um all right so that is the story of hippocrates and asclepius at least the story i'm going to tell about them and uh so we're going to wrap up this episode uh i'm going to invite you to check out my website and uh or search for neurodescent on google all right, so and I hope you go out in the world with a sense of wonder about your fellow human beings. Yeah, right. Um, next episode, we will uh, carry on our explanation of Foucault's ideas uh, and the history of demons. Um, in particular, we're going to discuss Asclepius's biggest competitor for healing God, Jesus Christ. It's not a sentence I ever thought I'd hear. Yeah, so this will be really interesting as we... We'll explore. Healing God. All right. I'm interested. Let's yeah. do the next one. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, one last thing I want to say is that all of the the references that I've used for this episode and for most of my scholarship are open access. And you can uh, go onto my website and find references and go read all of this stuff yourself if you'd like. I, I would not like, but thank you for doing that so I don't have to. <laughs> All right. Till next time. Enjoy your sense of wonder. Enjoy your sense of wonder.